Open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Your outlines are, um, well, they're a little bit off, like the pastor. So, <laughs> it's supposed to be uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And we're going to try to get uh, through most of today's message and all that we have going on uh, as far as the gospel, as far as the gospel of God is concerned. The gospel of God. Let me just do some recap uh, before we get started. Um, in, uh, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is talking to a city that he was able to minister to for a very short time. Some people believe it was only three weeks. Others believe it was probably more like three months. But regardless, he didn't have much time to really disciple and to grow the, the people in Thessalonica. But the one thing that uh, Paul did do was uh, he, he followed up on them. And he, when he followed up on them, he heard some great things about how they were growing. And, and uh, we, we kind of pointed that out at the very beginning where we saw in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only a word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, and you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. And Paul was just excited about how they have grown and what they've, how they've grown into and de developed. And Paul is basically telling them, we've heard about your labor of love, your work of faith, and, and your steadfastness of hope. We've heard about how you are holding on in spite of all the, the persecution that they've been through. Uh, you know, we, we've heard about how you are, have sounded off the, the gospel message. This gospel message, he calls it our gospel, my gospel, he calls it. And it's not that he is the saving one. It's not that he has good news to tell everybody. Is he is proclaiming the gospel that only comes from God, that only comes from Jesus Christ. And he's proclaiming that gospel. And he's taken ownership of it. And now it's something that he lives by and works by and breeds by. And this is all that he does. This is of most importance to, to Paul. And so he tries to get it out to everyone. And this should be of most importance to us to give it out to everybody that we know as well. Now he goes on in verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul comes out and he says, yes, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news is that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Yes, this is the gospel message, the good news that has my good news. I'm giving it to you, this gospel. But ultimately, Paul sums it all, all down to the gospel of God. Did you know that God was an evangelist? He is the one proclaiming good news. And he's been doing this from the very beginning of time. His good news, his gospel has been set out from the beginning of time. And this has always been his good news. And we're going to go over that a little bit today. And we're going to go back into the Old Testament to see where this gospel started and how it was proclaimed and how it is that they used and Paul read this gospel and how the disciples read this gospel and lived this gospel and this good news of God and they were able to turn the world upside down with just the Old Testament. Specifically, I'm going to focus on one portion of Scripture in Isaiah 53. But before we do that, let's, uh, let's move on. Excuse me, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And uh, ask the Lord to, to lead us in all understanding. Father, we, we thank you once again for the word 
that is placed before us right now that uh, we are even permitted to and allowed to and, and so privileged to hold in our hand. And this word, Lord, that you had spoken many years ago, now preserved for us to read and to meditate upon and to memorize and to, to study and to, and to look at, Lord, and to, just to see it and hear it preached and hear it read. And we thank you for preserving it in such a uh, perfect manner where we can still receive your instruction that you gave people in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago that it was even proclaimed even 4,000 years ago, even from today. So, Lord, we know that your word stands true. It's one complete story. And today we just want to just soak up a little bit of what it is that you gave us and how it was that your, your word has affected and, and infected this world. And Lord, we know that your word is the only thing that we can hold on to that stands forever because your word will not come back void. Uh, there won't be a jot or a tittle, a, a dot or a crossed T that will fade from your word until everything comes to fruition. And so, Father, we thank you for that. We pray that you lead us this morning in the understanding of your word as we dive into it. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen and amen. When Paul was preaching the gospel, the gospel message of Jesus Christ, Paul had no other resource other than the Old Testament. The apostles, they had no other resource except for the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit, when Jesus Christ departed, and we'll read this here in just a little bit, when the Holy Spirit departed, excuse me, when Jesus Christ departed and the Holy Spirit came, the Holy Spirit was able to open their minds to the things that Jesus Christ had taught them. Now, somehow they were, uh, by God, they were, they were closed. Their eyes and ears were closed and locked out of the mystery of the Holy Spirit of the Scriptures until it was time for Jesus Christ to be revealed as the Messiah. And, and throughout Scripture, we're seeing, you know, why is it that people don't believe? As a matter of fact, some of you might even think that today. How come people don't just believe? You know, I believe, and it's so simple, so easy. And why is it that I can see, yet my family can't see, my friends can't see, the world can't see? And we have to understand that there is a blindness because of their willingness not to believe, or they are unwilling to believe. They don't want to believe. They don't want to t take it in. And so then God says, all right, well, then I'm not going to let you believe. And he closes their eyes and he, he shuts their ears. <clears throat> but from the very beginning in, in your outlines, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For I deliver to you as of first importance. And what Paul's main goal was what he was delivering, the message of Jesus Christ the gospel of Jesus Christ, of what he did. And he saw this as the most of first importance to him and to his, his hearers. So, so if it is of most importance to Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, then it should be of as, as much as importance to us as well. Paul says, for I delivered to you, as of first importance. Now, when we went through the book of 1 Corinthians, we studied a little bit about how Paul started his ministry. He was a missionary in all these different places, but he was on his way to Damascus as an, a Pharisee. He was on his way to Damascus as a Pharisee. His name was Saul, and he was going to capture the Christians, or people of the way is what they were called. And they were going to be taken to Jerusalem. They were going to imprison them. They were going to take away all their belongings. They were going to give them uh, just, you know, a bunch of headaches. And they were going to take away all that they had and persecute them. They, they would stone them. They would imprison them. They would uh, make sure that they never, ever proclaim this word again. Saul really believed he was doing God's work. And on his way to, on his way to Damascus, with letters in his hand from the leaders and the elders of the church in Jerusalem or the Pharisees, he was ready to capture those that he knew where they were at. Somehow he got word, somebody turned these people in, and Paul was on his way there with search warrants, I guess you would say. And these were warrants that he was going to just pound down the doors and carry these people off back to Jerusalem. And on his way... Christ met him, or he met Christ, and he showed himself, and Jesus Christ converted him. And, it, and we find out later in the Gospels, excuse me, in the epistles that he writes, that Paul was in the desert or in the wilderness for at least three years, learning from Jesus Christ. Because prior to this, Saul had no 
knowledge of Jesus Christ's word except for what he heard and what he saw. And so he wasn't trained by Jesus growing up. He was trained by the Pharisees in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, he knew backwards and forwards. You just had to, to be a good Pharisee. You just had to know where all these verses were at. And so in the wilderness, in the, in the time that Saul, apparently he was in the desert, he was gone for some time, and he went to, people say he went to the school of hard knocks. Jesus Christ just infused in him everything that was in the Old Testament and taught him and showed him, this is who I am. And so when Paul says, I deliver to you as of first importance what I received, he says, what I received. And when he received this, he received it firsthand from Jesus Christ. And so now he was able to share the gospel message. And the gospel message that he proclaimed was this, in short, that Christ died for our sins. Now, we have to understand what that means. See, we just read it over in Christ died for our sins. Uh, according to the scripture, he was buried and he was raised on the third day. Hallelujah. Praise God for that. But for the Jewish people and for the nations, the people that were constantly trying to appease a sovereign God, this deity that was just angry and full of wrath and wanting to just destroy and demolish the world, not just God, but all the other gods that people believed in. What Jesus Christ did when he died for our sin, you have to understand that every day, every morning, once a month, once a week, once a year, they would have to bring sacrifices to God in the temple. Every year they brought a scapegoat. Every year they brought their lamb for Passover. They would bring drink offerings. They would bring grain offerings. They would bring uh, various types of offerings. If, if you had sinned, you'd come, you'd bring a turtle dove. And so you were constantly trying to appease the, the, the commandments of God. If you broke them, you had to go and show yourself to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees would wipe your sins clean if you gave them the offering that was required. This was the Levitical law. And when Every year they would sacrifice the Passover lamb, as we celebrated here just recently over uh, the Seder meal that we had. This Passover lamb was a symbol of the sin that was over their, their life. And, and the blood that was placed on their doorposts was, was already was taking care of the whole household. And the angel of death would pass over their life and their, and their families. Now, way back in Genesis, in Genesis, when Adam and Eve had sinned, God told them, if you eat of this fruit, you would surely die. And of course, they didn't die, but God covered them with the sacrificial uh, clothing of a lamb or something. Most people believe it was a lamb. And he covered them with the, with the garments of skin of an animal. And when, when he did that, that was his way of appeasing. He graciously caused Adam and Eve to continue to live instead of taking their life like each one of us when we understand that we are sinners. And, and so this sacrificial system that had been going on for years, Jesus Christ came and fulfilled it. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. You know, the law still stands. I came to fulfill it. I came to be the sacrificial lamb, the grain offering, the fellowship offering, the, the wave offering, the, the drink offering, all these offerings that... I came to fulfill that, Jesus Christ says, and therefore now he says, it is finished. So in that portion of scripture, in that, that, just, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, Paul is covering all that history by what Jesus Christ did. He covered it. And, and when, you, when you understand the sacrificial system as to why it was that they had to do this, this was required by God. It was a forerunner. It was just a symbol. It was a picture of what was to come. Messiah shows up. Jesus Christ shows up. He takes care of that once and for all. And then he says he died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures. Now, this is important because, well, prior to the New Testament, we didn't know much about Jesus. All we knew was about the Christ. Remember, Jesus the Christ. Jesus is his name. The Christ is his title. Or in Hebrew, it's the Messiah. But Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ are synonymous, are the ident two same people. Christ in the Greek or Messiah in the Hebrew was the one that they were waiting for. Messiah or, or Christ means the anointed one. 
the one that God has chosen to save Israel from all the suppression that they were going through. They were waiting for Messiah. They were waiting for Christ. Jesus shows up. Now think about this. You have to, you have to really just put yourself there. They have this suppression from the Romans. They've been, in, they've been enslaved by the, uh, the Babylonians. They have been uh, made slaves in, in Pharaoh by, by Egypt. And so you have all these different types of things that have gone on to the Jewish people. And constantly and constantly the Jewish people have been, been just really just ridiculed and, and try, almost exterminated. And so here comes this babe that's born in a manger, which wasn't necessarily a, uh, an uncommon thing. You know, a lot of peasants, remember, they didn't have Kaiser Permanente or St. Bernardines. They didn't have hospitals to go to. They, you know, wherever they, whenever they felt the labor pains, they, they just knew. They had midwives and people that would help them. Now, Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem because that's where the city of uh, David was because that's where they were the lineage of. And on the way there, on the, you know, I'm sure she was having labor pains. You know, Get me somewhere quick. And we need a room. There's no rooms. Everybody's here. You know, you guys got here late. Well, my wife was pregnant. You know, she, I had to stop every five minutes and ask for directions. No, he didn't say that. Uh, there was a star. He didn't have a star either. He, he didn't have MapQuest, but he knew where he was going. And he got there and they said to him, all we have is the main. You can, you can sleep there with the rest of the folks like some people are doing. So they went. And, and so having... A child in a manger wasn't an uncommon thing. However, when you think about the king that is to be born, you would not think of him being born in a stable. You would think about a palace, or you would think probably more of a, a mansion of some sort, or you would have some sort of other uh, understanding of this king that is coming. But Jesus Christ was born just like any other person was in the time of need. And I'm sure a lot, of, a lot of women had their children on the way to the hospital, like some have them in taxi cabs or elevators or whatever the case may be. You know, back then, that's, it's, it's time. Let's do it right here. Just make some room and bring some water and we'll have a child. And that's, what Jesus, that's how Jesus Christ was born. It was prophesied by all people, Micah, and even uh, Isaiah. And throughout all the scriptures, they were prophesying about this child, this king, this virgin that was going to have... Uh, Isaiah talks about this virgin that was going to give birth to the, this, this king. And he's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. He was going to be called the Prince of Peace. And so all these prophecies, they were, they were known. As a matter of fact, when the Magi came from the east, they saw the star. They recognized, you know what? The king was born. And they heard about this king by uh, more than likely Daniel and other, other people that were sent to captivity from the east. And they were captive back there. Again, God's master plan, moving things. Israel was destroyed. The people were taken all the way east to uh, Babylon. And uh, Babylon is, holds all these people in captivity. Daniel is one of the smartest men there. And the, the king says, hey, I, I like you. I like your wisdom. I like the way you're able to interpret dreams. Teach the rest of my magi how to do so. And, and he taught them about Jesus. Well, excuse me, he taught them about God and how the Messiah was going to come. And so they had this understanding of Messiah that was going to come. Years later, here comes the star. The, the kings are saying, the magi are saying, look, there's a king being born. This is the one that Daniel talked to us about. And they went and, and they followed this star and, and they saw it, but they had no clue as to, okay, how do we gauge it? How do we understand this? So they went to Herod and they told Herod, Herod, you know what? There's a king that's going to be born. It's the king of the Jews. Where is he so that we can worship him? You know, his ears all of a sudden perked up. Because Herod was a wicked king. He killed his wife. He killed his son. He killed people that he thought were trying to get his leadership. I'm the king. I don't want nobody taking over my property. I'm the one in charge here. And so when he heard that this child king was born, he called the Pharisees. Where is this king supposed to be born? You know what they did? They went to the Old Testament. The Old Testament says, well, it says here he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. You know, it's right here. There's supposed to be a star, and there it is. And, and he's, supposed, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So he told the Magi, they're born in Bethlehem. When you find him, please let me know, because I, too, want to go and worship. And you know the story. They found the, key, they found the child. They gave the gifts. And instead of going to Herod, they, the angel told them, don't, because Herod wants to damage and kill this kid. And uh, the, the, angels, uh, the, the Magi left. 
And Herod was infuriated that they had burned him, that they had just betrayed him. And he went out and he killed every child from two years and under, which gives us an indication that Jesus Christ might have been two years old. This is how wicked this king was. And in the dream, an angel came to Joseph and says, get out of here because Herod wants to kill the child. And so all these things that were prophesied have come to fruition. We, we have, I mean, just it is pinpointed to how it happens. It doesn't give us the exact time, but it does give us the exact uh, results of what's going to happen. And this is all important because all of this is according to the scriptures. And so why we read the scriptures, excuse me, is the same reason. Because we need to know the scriptures. And for Paul, the only way that he was able to share this gospel was according to the scriptures. Look at the next verse in John 1, verse 45. Uh, and, and if you have one of those Bibles, uh, one of the Bibles that we have in the pews, it's on page 901. But John 1, 45, it says this, that Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And he was born in Bethlehem, moved to Nazareth, came from Nazareth. And uh, as a matter of fact, I believe it was right here where he says, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And again, that was something that was quoted in the Old Testament. They are going to say that nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Bethlehem, you're the smallest nation, you're the smallest city. You're nothing, you know, nothing can come out of that. But yet, pinpoint accuracy. And so when Philip found Nathaniel... He had talked to Jesus. He knew Jesus, and he, he, he saw him. And all of a sudden, it's like he knew, hey, the guy that we've been reading about that was in the law that, that Moses wrote 2,000 years ago, that we're seeing it now, he, he is here. As a matter of fact, Jesus told the uh, Pharisees, and this is not in your outlines, in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And if they, if they that bear witness about me, the scriptures, they believed that they would read them and that would give them, that would give them a, a righteousness. The more that they read the scriptures, they believed that they were righteous. But Jesus says, you know, if, if you really want to know the scriptures, what you need to do is you need to look at what Abraham said about me. In Luke 24, verses 24 through 27, one of my favorite passages that I like to go back and look over and over again, the two men that are walking to Emmaus, he says to them, uh, well, well, again, you know, just, just very shortly, very briefly, we don't have time to go over the whole story. I've shared this story with you many times before. But again, Jesus had just been crucified. And then on the first day of the week, he resurrected. The women went to the, went to the grave and didn't see him there. They came running, telling the disciples, they've taken away the, uh, our, our Lord. And uh, they come to find out that he must have resurrected like he said he was going to. And then he appeared to some of the men and the women. And then, and then the disciples that were already on their way home, they were downcast because they said, yeah, they said that Jesus Christ resurrected. And, and uh, you know, we're on our way home now. It's like it's, it's a few hours and we have to walk. And, and so on this process, on this road, Jesus comes to them and sees them downcast. Why are you downcast? What are you guys talking about? And he says, well, you know, the, the Jesus, the, the one that we thought was going to bring back Israel to its right standing. They were looking for a national king, a national president. They were looking for a political leader. They were looking for somebody to get them out of this slavery that they were in, out of this oppression. And then Jesus says to them, Oh, you foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You know, everything that the prophets have spoken. Don't you remember, he says to them, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? You see, there's the Christ. There's the, the title of Jesus, the anointed one. And, he, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So in this journey, on this journey, he's talking to the disciples, these two disciples. One of them was named Cleopas, not the 12 apostles, but a disciple, a follower. And, and one of them name was Cleopas. We don't know the name of the other person, but they were learning from Jesus firsthand. They didn't know it was him. And what Jesus did, he took them back to Moses. What that means is he took them back to the first five books of the Old Testament. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He took them back to those five books. And out of those five books, he was able to decipher the, and, and pull out pictures of the Christ and how he was going to suffer and how he was going to live. And, and, and he started just showing them, look, Christ, 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 Jesus. I'm sure he taught them about uh, Adam and Eve in the garden and the snake that uh, came out. It's called the first, evangelist, uh, uh, first evangelistic story. It, when, when Jesus, it, God says that this, this child, this snake, is going to bite his heel, but his heel is going to crush his head. Speaking of the crucifixion, a lot of scholars point to that as the first evangelistic story on how the Christ child is going to demolish and destroy the kingdom of Satan. A little bit later, I'm sure he talked to him about Abraham and Isaac on how Isaac was carrying the wood up the mountain, and this wood was a symbol of a cross of Jesus Christ. And Abraham was going to sacrifice his son for, uh, for his, to see his obedience. And so, I mean, there are a lot of stories that, uh, that are in the Old Testament. We don't have time to go through them all, and we will one day. But right now, all I'm saying is that Jesus Christ went back and he pulled out all those stories, all those words, the laws, the commandments, the, the, the Passover lamb. I'm sure he talked to them about the Passover lamb, the blood that was shed. I'm sure that he talked to them about the, the grain offerings and all these, you know, all the, the fellowship offerings and how, the, how all these things had to come to fruition. He says to them, don't you remember? Was, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? And he talked to them about all those things that pointed to him. As a matter of fact, I think, the more that we get into this, the more, the more we can actually find, you know, like the ark, how the ark was part of the story, I'm sure Jesus Christ told them, on, on how he is the one that is going to save the world. Uh, the day of atonement, the resurrection, and, uh, as, as far as Jonah's concerned, how Jonah was in the belly uh, of the whale for three days, uh, and so will the Son of Man be in the, in the, belly, of the, uh, the belly of the earth. How Jesus was rejected as the cornerstone in, in Psalms, how... In uh, Zechariah, the shepherd of the flock is slaughtered by the sheep tenders. I mean, over and over again in the Old Testament, there are pictures of Jesus Christ being slaughtered or the Christ or the stone that will be uh, destroyed by Antichrist or the shoot of Jesse uh, or Christ's millennial kingdom and things that come still in the future. So Christ is, is just going through all these verses and, and walking with them and talking to them and, and sharing with them. And I'm sure Psalm 22 was probably right at the top of the list. You know, this is, you guys have got to look at Psalm 22, he says. I mean, look at Psalm 22. They didn't have chapters and verses back there. But turn with me to Psalm 22. Will you please very quickly? We've, we've been through this, but again, just for recap. Psalm 22 in Psalm 22, verse 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? If you remember, these are the words that Jesus Christ proclaimed on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, bakthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And every time that the Jewish people went to a verse... They didn't quote John, uh, excuse me, Psalm 22. They would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's go there. Oh, yeah, we know where that's at. Pull out the scroll, it's a scroll of, uh, of Psalms, turn it and turn it until you get to 22. Then you knew exactly where to go. Just like many of you know exactly how to find the book of Psalms. You, you open it up. You put your close your Bible together like this and you open it up right in the middle. You should some, most of the times fall right on Psalms. It's right in the middle of your Bible. It's, it's very simple to find. And, and so then he goes on to say in verses 7 and 8, he says this, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Remember how, he was, how, how the Pharisees wagged their heads and they go, he, he trusted in the Lord. Really? I mean, he was able to heal every people, all the other people. Let him, let, himself, let, him, let him get himself down from that cross. I mean, if he's so confident in what he can do. And in verses 14 and 15, he says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of a joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shared. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. 
Again, a picture of the crucifixion, a picture of him hanging there, a picture of him just being poured out like water as, his, as the spear goes through his heart and blood and water pour out. Uh, all his bones are out of joint as, as he's hanging there with all the weight of his body just pulling down on all his joints and, and just t getting his arms and his wrists and everything out of out of place, dislocating his wrist, dislocating his shoulders. Uh, you know, it, it's, again, and the crucifixion wasn't even thought about yet. The crucifixion didn't actually come in until uh, almost 800 years later. And here, the psalmist is talking exactly about everything that's happening to Jesus Christ on a cross. For Look at it, verse uh, 16 and 18. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Now, come on. Here he is, David, talking about being pierced, his hands and his feet. And this is Messiah's picture. This is the Christ's picture. And Jesus, I'm sure he's showing him this. Don't you guys remember this? When you guys went to Shabbat school, you guys were doing your bat mitzvah. You guys were looking at all the, the Old Testament things that you... I'm sure you saw this. Yeah, those, we remember those things. But, you know, this, we saw this just a couple of days ago in you or in the Christ. They're probably thinking in their head because they don't know it's Jesus yet. Look at verse, uh, uh, well, I mean, we can go on and on and on. For, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers in, uh, encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. When Christ was on the cross, they had, well, prior to putting him on the cross, they mocked him by putting this crown of thorns on his head. And when they put this crown of thorns on the head, they started to bow before him. They put this purple scarlet robe on him, and it, it, it looked almost like royalty. And so that when they took him to the cross, they stripped him naked again, and they left the cross on. And, and, and so instead of ripping it into pieces, if you remember correctly, at the foot of the cross, they're standing there, and they say, well, you know what, let's just cast lots for it. Let's, I'll, I'll, I'll shoot you for it. Let's see who wins. And there they are casting lots, and whoever won it took it. Now, all of this, all of this is prophesied before Jesus Christ is even born. Hundreds of years. Hundreds of years before Jesus Christ is even born. And, and here we have a, a pinpoint accuracy of the scriptures that I'm sure Jesus Christ is talking to these two men uh, on the way to Emmaus. There, there are many others. In, 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 I'm just going to read these. In Psalm 69, it says, More in number than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? In Psalm 41, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who I ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Speaking and prophesying about Judah. Uh, in Psalm 69, They gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink speaking of the time that jesus is on the cross saying i thirst over and over again in isaiah chapter 50 verse 6 it says i gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard i hid not my face from disgrace and spitting isaiah is the prophet that spoke about the christ more than any other prophet, he spoke about Jesus Christ and how things were going to come together. Jesus, I'm sure, as he's talking to the two men on Emmaus and all this journey, he says, look, remember this. Remember how that went down, how, how it all happened. And, and, and so we have to look at all these scriptures to look at the gospel of God. It was already in, in play. God had already put it into practice. He says, this is what I want my Christ to do. He has to endure this type of punishment. His back is, has, has to be ripped. He has to be pierced. He has to be spit upon. He has to be ridiculed. This is my Messiah. The one thing that the Jewish people and the Pharisees looked at, they didn't want to see that. It's there. Because on the flip side of that, He's going to rule. He's going to conquer with an iron fist, with a scepter in his hand. He's going to have, he's going to have a seat in, the, in, in all the heavens, and he's going to rule the, all the world. And that's what they were looking for. 
That's what everybody, everybody wants the, the, the glory, you know, the name it and claim it type of thing. Give me, give me all the, the things that, that, that are good for me, Lord. You know, I don't want the bad things. You know, keep those aside. Keep those away. We want, we want to feel good. We want, we want to be able to, 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 to do what it is that we want to do and still bless us, Lord, in, in a way that is going to make us just grow. And as they are, they are going through this nation and building and, and Israel's coming back and, and they've, they've been out of captivity now for some time. And the good thing about coming back from captivity after they were enslaved, they never went back to the old gods again. They never went back to the old idols. Once they came to Jerusalem, once they understood, you know what, we, we have sinned and we cannot be going back to that anymore, to the old idols. Nobody else is going to be resurrecting idols here anymore. And they didn't. Their mindset was set on fulfilling the law, on studying the law. If we keep the law perfectly, and so it became very legalistic for them. And when they fulfilled the law, excuse me, when they read the law, they only read it to see what they can get out of it. Like sometimes many of us do. Right. We only read it to see what we can get out of it, how much it can bless me, how much it can bless others. And so the thing the thing about this is, is that the, the in the Old Testament, it was always talked about who Jesus Christ was. Uh, as a matter of fact, let me have you, um, if you'd like, open up to Acts chapter eight. Acts chapter eight is uh, is the story of an Ethiopian that was in Jerusalem worshiping. He was a lover of God and he feared God. But he wasn't necessarily a Jew because he says here he was an Ethiopian. And uh, he was a eunuch, a eunuch of the court officials of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. And he was on his way back to Africa, basically is where that's at. You know, we're up in Jerusalem and he's going back down to Africa and he's on his way home. And he so happens to have a scroll with him that he's reading. You know, he's got, he's got a long journey, so he might as well read something. And on his way home, he's reading the scroll, and the scroll that he was reading, well, let me, let me just share the story with you. I didn't even turn there. Hold on. What did I say? Acts chapter 8? Yes, I did, didn't I? Uh, but, and then um, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasures. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to slaughter. Like a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? That is the question that you should be asking as well. Whom is he talking about? That is the question. Who is this Messiah? Who is this Christ? What did he have to go through? in order for him to become the Messiah. And as a matter of fact, we're going to go through this portion of Scripture thoroughly uh, this Sunday and next Sunday uh, in Isaiah chapter 53. That's what he was reading. He was reading Isaiah 53. And uh, right after that, in verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Somehow, somewhere, as he's talking to him about Jesus, 
First of all, it's about the Messiah, the suffering servant from uh, Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah had prophesied this to the T. We'll see this in Isaiah 53, how he prophesied how he's going to die, how he's going to resurrect, and how he's going to come back, and, and just what they were going to do to him. This is the gospel of God. God's gospel has been mentioned and talked about over and over again in the New Testament. We hear a lot about the gospel of God. The gospel of God is, is constantly being proclaimed by, first of all, Paul himself. Um, in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, he says to the people in Rome, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. In First uh, Thessalonians, as we are now reading, he says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because we had become very dear to us. In First Timothy, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The gospel of God is the message that they had to share with everyone else. They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have tracts. They didn't have uh, evangelism explosion. They didn't have the Roman road. They didn't have the four critical questions. They didn't have the ABCs of salvation or all these other uh, ways of being able to share the gospel with people. They talked to them about what God did. This gospel, this good news, what He has done for the people of Israel. And this gospel is the gospel that has been brought to you, that has been brought to us. This gospel comes from Paul himself, from God himself, through Paul's lips. The very first thing that we, and I want you to now turn to Isaiah chapter 53. And here's where we're going to camp out for a while. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, if you need a page number, it's 613. As I mentioned a little while ago, the Bible did not have any chapters and verses. As a matter of fact, it was divided up into scrolls. And so 1 Thessalonians was one scroll, 1 Corinthians was another scroll, 2 Corinthians. So you had all these scrolls. Some of them were put together and written together. Some of them were big, giant scrolls, but all of them were just big scrolls. And a scroll made out of papyrus, it was this... Uh, this wicker that grew in the Nile River and they would, they would harvest it and stomp on it and press it all out and, and make it flat. And then they would write on it with, uh, with this ink that they would make up from dyes and such. And, and that's how the, these scrolls were made. And, and they, they, they preserved well. And uh, they did because we found in 1948, we found that what they call the Dead Sea Scrolls that had been encased in these jars. It's interesting how they found these scrolls. There was this kid that was throwing rocks, and he threw a rock inside of a cave, and as he heard something break, he turns around and starts running. He says, oh, wait a minute, there's no windows up there. <laughs> you know, I didn't break a window. He went to go check it out, and they found these, these jars that were filled with all these, all, all, everything, all these uh, writings from way back when, various types of writing. In the book of Isaiah is one that is intact. They have a one that is intact. They have another one that is not so put together properly. But the book of Isaiah has been preserved nicely from God for us. And when they took in 1948 and they started to study the book of Isaiah, and they started to see the English translation and the Spanish and the Greeks that they had, everything was word for word, identical. There were no mistakes, except for maybe some typographical errors where you see the pen just kind of scratch up and makes it, makes it look like a vowel or something. And, and maybe some, some wording that might have been mixed up a little bit, but bottom line, it was pretty much equal. This is how, this is how you can know that you have the authentic Word of God. Because any word, any Bible that does not line up to those uh, manuscripts, then you, you have to just kind of Throw those aside. This is how you know that you have an authentic word from God. But in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53 is what we call it. It really starts in Isaiah 52, verse 13. And because they didn't have chapter and verses back then, 
This, and when they did put the, the chapter and verses, and pretty much along the way of the Bible, it, it gets cut up in, in, in almost a very good, reasonable sense, in a, in a good way to make understand, it makes it understandable. You can, you can see the breakups, and it, they're natural breaks. And, you know, that's a very natural break. That's a good place to put a chapter and a verse and a heading. But back then, all they had was just one complete scroll. It was just written that way. The way I read 2 Thessalonians chapters 1 and the first part of chapter 2, did you notice how I skipped from the last verse of chapter 1 and went straight, straight into chapter 2, verses 1 and 2? That's how it was read. That's how it was written. And it wasn't until much later. So the, this break here, it's unfortunate that they put it here because it really should be one section total. Isaiah 53 should be from verses 13, 14, and 15, and the rest all the way up to chapter, uh, verses 12. I believe it's 12, yeah. And so we start here, and if you would like to do like I did, kind of put a line right up there and say, okay, this is the start of where this, this portion of Scripture starts, and kind of put a little block going this way. And it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced for our transgressions. Now, a little bit about Isaiah. Isaiah is called the suffering prophet. Isaiah was sawed in two. He was hung upside down and sawed in two near the temple. Isaiah was ridiculed, laughed at every prophet that spoke about God and his, uh, what he was going to do. Isaiah spoke more about salvation and the Christ than any other prophet. Oh, yes, he, he pinpointed to the people, you're in sin, you're in sin, you're in sin, you're in sin. And uh, I tell people, you want to be a prophet? you got to be willing to be ridiculed. Because prophets aren't very popular people. Not like today, prophets are very popular because, well, they can pretty much give you whatever you want, I think. I don't know how they do that, but in the Old Testament... That was not a call you wanted. None, none of these prophets says, hey, I don't want to do this. Every one of these prophets says, God, I don't want to do this. You're going to do what? Like Jonah. Go talk to the people in Nineveh. I ain't going over there. <laughs> they, you're going to save them. I'm not, I'm not going. Those, those people deserve to get killed. They deserve your wrath, God. And Jonah, Jonah says, nope. And he says, I'm going the opposite direction. And he went down to Joppa. He went down to the boat. He went down to the... To the, to the bottom of the boat until finally he went down to the ocean of the whale, uh, the bottom of the ocean. He went down, and that's exactly what happens when you go against God. And Isaiah says, okay, I, I'll, I'll, I'll do this, not because I want to. He didn't sign up for this. None of these prophets did. And in, starting in chapter 40, he starts talking about salvation. He starts talking about how God is going to save his people. And, and he talks about, you know, he, the wicked are, gonna, are, are not going to be no more. There's no rest for the wicked. And, and he goes on and talks about them, but not as much as he talks about the salvation. Matter of fact, if you go back to verse 40, chapter 40, very quickly, just to give you a, a glimpse of what Isaiah's message was. He starts off by saying in chapter 40, verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God was already pardoning, has been pardoning from the beginning of time. And in Isaiah 53, which is what I'm going to call it from this point forward, 52, 13 and on, I'm just going to call it all Isaiah 53, because that's how most people talk about this. In Isaiah 53, it shows us how God is going to pardon you and me. And like I said, I'm only going to be able to get into the first part of this. And, and it says here, you know, you know what, I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll come back and we'll go over it. We'll, we'll just we'll cut it up and, not cut it up, excuse me, but we'll expound on it. But right above verse 13 in my Bible, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now notice the past tense and present tense and the future tense. Verse 13, he shall be. Okay? He shall be. He shall act wisely. He shall 
be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Isaiah is looking to a time that Jesus Christ shall be exalted. Now, we know that that time hasn't come yet because he's not exalted in all the nations yet. He hasn't become, and become king yet. So Isaiah is looking forward to the end of time, to the end of when Jesus Christ returns. And then it takes a quick shift in verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. See, now all of a sudden, he's like looking back. He's looking back at the crucifixion. And he said, I can see Christ exalted. I can see him crucified. And I'm looking at what they did to him. I'm looking at how they marred him, how they ripped his flesh off his body, how they beat him to a pulp, how they put this crown of thorns on his head, and how all this blood just covered him. And people looked at him, who's that? He was marred. And they were astonished. And this astonishment is, is, a, is a type of, you know, it's like, whoa. I mean, it's, what happened? It's like a wake up. It's like somebody threw some cold water on your face. You're just kind of sitting there, probably dozing off, and somebody throws a bucket of water on you. And it just, it, that's the reaction of the people. When you look at this 800 years before Christ, and you look at what, I'm sorry, it was 500 years before Christ, and you look at how it took place on the streets of Jerusalem. And many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Again, We'll go over this in a little bit and kind of help you understand what it is that Isaiah is talking about here. Verse 1 and 53. Who has believed what he has learned or heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Once again, this, this shoot, this, this plant, this young shoot, right now I am growing tomatoes, okay? And one of the things that I, and I hope I grow enough to pass around, I, you know, we, I want to be able to give as many as I can. But one of the things about growing tomatoes, and, and most plants, is that they have these little shoots, these little suckers that come out of the ground, next to the floor, next to the ground. And in order for all the nutrients not to be sucked out of those, those uh, suckers, you got to cut them off. You cut them off as they're growing, especially those that are on the floor, those that can get uh, infected. They're worthless. They're, they're, they're no good. As a matter of fact, I, you know, I just use them for fertilizer, just you know, kind of dig them back into the dirt. Some of them are big enough that I can transplant and make, uh, make another uh, tomato plant out of. But the, the point that I'm trying to make here is that here, when he talks about this shoot, this root out of the dry ground, it's this, this branch that's coming out of the fig tree or the olive tree that is just, you got to cut that thing off. This is what the Christ or Jesus was like. He's just a nobody. He's a nothing. He's, he's a carpenter's son, for God's sakes. You know, I mean, a king? Come on. You know, he's born in a stable. And he says that his father is the Holy Ghost. Yeah, he, he doesn't even know who his father is, was the joke of the day. And, and so as you look at Isaiah and you see how it was written about Jesus Christ and how Jesus was able to share the gospel of God. See, this gospel, beloved, is so important, so dear to the heart of God. We cannot, we cannot dismiss it. We cannot play around with it. We cannot just, just say, oh, okay, well, it's good news and I'm glad I heard it and let me go on. I'm trying to share with you the importance, the intensity, the, the, the just how, how it is that we should be so sold out for this gospel because God spoke about this before even Jesus Christ came to this world. Verse 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And as one form, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And here is the core of the gospel message. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that's before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this, his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the, trans, stricken for the transgression of the people. The, just so just I can say something here about this, that he was cut off of the land of the living, that means he died. He was killed. And they made his grave with the wicked, another picture of him dying. And with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Again, a picture of the resurrection. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Beloved Jesus Christ, from the mouth of Isaiah, from the pen of Isaiah, God showed him what it was going to be like the people in the time of Jesus got to experience. And now, in our time, we get to proclaim it. Not because it was an accident. Not because people were evil and they just did it just because. People ask, why was he crucified? Well, because, bottom line, the simplest and the most direct way of saying this, because God said so. Why, why would this so mean to him? Well, because God said so. Bottom line. Why, why were they, why'd they even put him in a crook? Because God said so. And we need to understand what God was trying to do here and why he said so and why it's important to you to understand what Jesus Christ went through so that you too would not have to suffer. You see, God had planned this from the beginning. And he planned for you to understand that. And he planned for you to live this and to proclaim this. This gospel of first importance is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ. But it began and it started in the heart of God himself so that you and I can have everlasting life. Let me ask you to stand. You know, it, it is appropriate, and I think it's, it's very apropos, I should say, that we shared the Lord's table this morning, the actual suffering, the humiliation of Christ. Uh, if, if you don't want to leave, if we pull out your outlines very quickly. If you don't want to leave without the outlines filled out, I can give you the, the, the lines to fill in. The first one is the exaltation of Christ. The exaltation of Christ. Number one, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Number two is the humiliation of Christ. The humiliation of Christ. Thank you. I appreciate that. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He was humiliated. Number three is the rejection of Christ. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And we'll talk about how and why it is that some people don't believe. That, you know, because they reject Christ. And number four, the elimination of Christ. For he grew up before him like a young plant 
and like a root out of the ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And he was despised and rejected by man, by men. And they cut this shoot off, or at least they thought they did, and they got rid of it. And they try to eliminate Christ. And, and when you think about you right now, looking in hindsight, I mean, well, that's Jesus. Why, why, why aren't they, why aren't they, uh, why, why don't they see this? What, what's going on in their lives? Yeah, how come, especially the Jewish people. I mean, they're the ones that read the scriptures. Well, why don't they see this? That's a very good question, which we'll answer next week. Let me ask you to go to the back and we'll partake of the Lord's table. Paul tells the people in Corinth, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for this wafer, this cracker that re represents your body. We, that those of us that have been through the Passover meal and the Seder, we understand where this bread of affliction came from, Yafikomen, that you pulled out and said, this is your body. That they had been celebrating for years without even understanding as to why they were celebrating and using that bread. How it was hid and brought back to life. So Father, we thank you how this represents your body. Today, as we look at the book of Isaiah, and we look at your gospel that you have proclaimed from the very beginning so that we can have a lesson today of what it means to understand that gospel. Thank you for this bread, for the wafer, and uh, what it represents. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone take. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And remember that we took this cup, the third cup, the cup of sanctification, the cup of redemption, the cup that was going to redeem God's people. And again, they would celebrate this every year. And that's the cup that Jesus Christ took out of this supper. And he presented it to the disciples and now presents it to us. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this cup that represents your blood. 
We know that this is grape juice. We know that it's a representation. And we know that it has no healing power or anything else. But God, it's a, it's a symbol of our salvation that we share with one another once a month. And so, Father, we just ask that you bless this juice, the vine that it came from. And we thank you, God, for that beautiful picture of that cruel cross. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Father in heaven, now that we have shared this, this time together in instruction and word, and that we shared this meal, I pray, Father, that you continue the fellowship within our own hearts with one another as we leave this place, but never from your presence, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen. Amen. All right. I'll be here next week, and we'll finish up the offering. Thank you.